Yeah, the reason ITI is so significant is because there are churches growing throughout uh, the world that um, desperately need leaders to help those churches to grow in a mature way and to um, multiply in other places. Without leadership, um, it's a group of people that don't know what to do and where to go. How I describe it to people is to equip self-proclaimed pastors. In many cases around the world, um, people come to know Jesus and then immediately want to share that. So they become pastors, but they've had no training, uh, you know, no theology school, no nothing. They don't even know how to study their Bibles and in some cases don't even own one. They've been teaching these things to their communities or their churches without any background training and then all of a sudden they're getting this training and you see that light bulb moment come on in their brain where they're like, oh, and now I know how to teach this to my people. Early on as uh, things began to grow, we realized we really need some other people helping um, helping us. There are some people in the church that are willing to go, but they can't go all the time. And so we reached out to some uh, friends from other churches, other leaders. More and more people got involved. And so now um, we have churches that own um, different ITIs around the world. So the church in Johnstown, they are committed to the ITI in Austria. It's transformed. It's transforming our church. Uh, this course. Uh, it's, I'm curious to see what's going to happen in three years with, with this community that, that we're in, uh, what's going to be happening as we start implementing some of what we've been teaching already over, overseas here. Uh, I, I expect God to be moving here as well. So ITI is uh, the International Training Institute, and it has eight courses that are pretty basic courses that every Christian needs, but a lot of these people that we go to don't have an opportunity to go to Bible college or seminary or be able to be taught this. Uh, so in addition to the biblical training and the book learning that the students do, um, we also have a listening prayer component with each ITI. And many of them, the tears that come during the prayer because they say, no one prays for us. And you know, they're out on the front lines, but they don't feel like people are praying for them. I would guess people are, but they don't know it the way they know when they come to listening prayer. Um, and so some have embraced it so much so that I get text messages or WhatsApp messages or Facebook messages, and they'll simply say, what are you hearing for me today, sister? Back in, uh, in 2010, when we started the ITI, we went to um, two countries, to Uganda and to Peru, where we had uh, three different ITIs. In 2018, we're going to have 97 ITIs around the world. And Obviously, our American teachers are not going to be able to do 97 ITIs. So what that means is we have trained up leaders in various parts of the world who have grabbed hold of this material. They've translated it into their own language. They've like taken it on as their ministry, and they have taken it themselves to other parts of either their countries or into other countries and taught it to more students and more languages and more people groups. But this past year, 2017, we were in 12 countries. We were in Peru. We have now been to Colombia and to Ecuador and to Cuba. And Lord willing, we'll go to Costa Rica in May. And they, they want us to go to Venezuela. Plus, we've been to Uganda and Kenya for ITI. 
Um, we've been to Egypt, and we have this really interesting work going on in Austria. And those people, when they learn it and graduate from the program, then they're taking it to more people, and those people are taking it to more people. And so, really, we probably don't even really know how many people have been impacted by this ministry. So. The kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom of God is advancing um, in many different ways and in many different parts through the training of leadership. And that's pretty exciting. All right, well, hello, Christ community. So glad all of you are here. Greetings to our West Campus and our traditions venue. Really, really glad you're here. Uh, before we jump into the message, I wanted to celebrate a, a pretty cool milestone. As many of you know, uh, we're engaged in a vision called For the City and Beyond, focusing on how we can make a greater impact in our city and around the world. The video that we just saw about the International Training Institute, that is one, that's just one part of For the City and Beyond, where we're providing training training for church leaders around the world, training where training is not easily accessible for them. So that was just a, a small part or one part of, of, of For the City and Beyond. But in a few weeks, we're going to be giving a, a huge update in terms of all that's been happening the last two years in For the City and Beyond. But I wanted to acknowledge and celebrate the fact that we recently hit the $3 million mark in terms of giving to this vision, which is absolutely amazing. So thank you. Yes, thank you for your generosity. <clears throat> I can't wait to give you uh, an update in a couple weeks on the weekend of March 2nd and 3rd. That's going to be the two-year anniversary of this vision, so don't miss that weekend. All right, if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 16. We are continuing this journey through the book of Luke, and one thing we're discovering in this book is that Jesus is not afraid to deal directly with hard issues, with topics that are challenging and that, that provoke the prevailing attitudes of the day. Because really this whole section in Luke 15 and 16 is really, it's about Jesus exposing the Pharisees for some of their attitudes and their practices. So going back to Luke 15, which we looked at a few weeks ago, the Pharisees are complaining. They were complaining about Jesus hanging out with sinners. And so Jesus confronts that attitude by telling this amazing story of the, the God's extravagant love towards sinners. And then early on in chapter 16, Jesus exposes the Pharisees' love for money and their attitude for money, how they, how they love money more than God and how that was impacting their lives in a negative way. And so we looked at that passage last week. Well, immediately after addressing the money issue, Jesus then says these words in Luke 16, verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Now, what Jesus is doing here is, again, confronting the Pharisees about something that is at the core of their belief system, and that is the law, which refers to the commands given um, to Moses in the Old Testament. See, the Pharisees highly valued the law, which was a really good thing. The problem was they turned this law into a legalistic, burdensome list of rules to perform in order to gain acceptance from God. 
And in doing so, they completely missed what the law ultimately pointed to, the good news of the kingdom, which Jesus mentions here, where the good news, where we can have a relationship with God through Jesus, our Messiah. So their application of the law completely missed God's heart. So then Jesus gives a specific example of this, where the Pharisees were not following the law. They were missing God's heart. And now we'll read the next verse. Verse 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, like I said earlier, Jesus has no problem bringing up issues that are controversial and and provoke discussion. And that's what we have here. Jesus raises the issue of divorce and remarriage. Now, let me just acknowledge here that this is not simply a theological issue. Divorce is a huge issue relationally and emotionally. Anyone here who has been divorced or who has had parents get divorced or adult children get divorced, you know how painful divorce is and how traumatic it is for everyone involved. The pain and the heartache, the betrayal that sometimes um, precipitates it, the rejection, the bitterness, the impact on children, the impact on in-laws and those relationships, the impact on the whole family. I mean, the emotional impact and weight of divorce are huge. So for me to stand up here and callously pontificate about divorce from a theological perspective without acknowledging the devastating and deeply personal impact of divorce would be spiritual malpractice on my part. But unfortunately, it happens all the time in Christian community. I I had someone recently tell me (coughs) about a friend of theirs who has been through a divorce and is now happily married to another person. And one day at work, very recently, a Christian came up to her and basically said, you're living in sin because you're remarried. And then they quoted a verse like Luke 16, 18 to make their point. That kind of thing infuriates me. It infuriates me, one, for the absolute lack of any compassion or understanding of what Christ has done for us on the cross by forgiving our sins. But it also frustrates me when people pick and choose certain Bible verses on this subject and ignore other passages that address this issue. They do exactly what the Pharisees were doing, focusing on certain commands and completely ignoring the heart of the command, or I should say the heart of God in the command. So what I want us to do is look at what's happening in Luke 16 and, 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 and then use other scriptures to inform our perspective on this issue so that we don't become well-intentioned Pharisees who, who use the Bible as a way to bring people further into bondage. Now, I've been doing quite a bit of study and reading on on this particular issue, preparing this message. And one of the best books that I came across, I read, highly recommend it. It's a book called Divorce and Remarriage, A Redemptive Theology by Rubel Shelley. And I put it on the screen there just in case you're interested in this. It's an excellent resource. Shelley writes as an evangelical pastor and a theologian. And it's a book that is rooted in the whole of scripture. And it's also just compassionately written. It's just a great book. But in the book, he says this. 
Biblical law is to be interpreted through its original divine intention to bless, humanize, and empower people, and not for the purpose of making their lives hopelessly complex and difficult. That is a great perspective. God's law was not given to oppress people and make their lives hopelessly difficult. It was given to bless people and free people. But the Pharisees often turned the law into an oppressive thing, like in how they approached the Sabbath. Remember, the Pharisees turned this good command of Sabbath rest into this legalistic burden for people, creating this huge list of things you couldn't, couldn't do on the Sabbath. And they totally missed the heart of the Sabbath, that it was a gift, it was a blessing. And the same thing can happen in the issue of divorce, where certain select passages of Scripture are, are used by certain people to place other people in bondage so that they now have to live out of this life of shame and isolation. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So, so let, let's look at what's going on in this verse in the book of Luke. Clearly, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees here. Now, now we know from the oral tradition of the rabbis in that time, it's a, a, a word called the, the Mishnah, but we know from the oral tradition of the rabbis in that day that there was a huge disagreement among rabbis about how to apply what Moses said about divorce. And so in order to kind of work through that, we're going to look at what Moses actually says about divorce. So the, 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 the issue, the passage that caused the controversy is found in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Now, this is an important passage that gives us the context in which to understand what Jesus is saying in Luke 16. So let me read this passage if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Now, let me just say right up front that these kinds of passages are hard for us to understand and interpret because of the cultural differences. The differences are so great, culturally speaking. Not only that, many of these Old Testament laws are case law. They're case law. They are dealing with a very specific situation. And we dare not try to read more into this than the actual situation. For instance, the passage that we just read assumes that divorce and remarriage are happening among God's people. It assumes that divorce and remarriage are happening among God's people. It does not forbid divorce, nor does it forbid remarriage except in one specific instance. The actual command, when you read it, it, the actual command is that a man who divorces his wife cannot remarry her later. It doesn't forbid him from marrying someone else, nor does it forbid her from remarrying someone else. 
So what is, we're trying to get to the heart of this passage. What is the heart of this particular law, the heart of this passage? Well, it actually provides a significant or provided a significant protection for women in that particular culture. In that time period, and in the cultures around Israel, and Israel struggled this as well, but especially the cultures around Israel, women were treated like property. They could be abused, they could be discarded, they could be just kicked out, they could be sexually exploited with no recourse, with no recourse for them. But in the law of Moses, we see these indications of women being protected and valued. So in this particular case, a woman couldn't be discarded without an official certificate of divorce. That certificate made the divorce an official end to the marriage so that she could marry someone else. See, a woman in that culture who was kicked out of her home um, for whatever reason, but if she was kicked out by the man, she was kicked out, she would have a really hard time making it financially. I mean, in that culture, because it was such a male-dominant society. So this law, this law is actually written, it was written to protect women in a male-dominated society from being taken advantage of. Okay, that's the heart of the law. But here's where the controversy with the Pharisees occurred. And ironically, it had nothing to do with the actual command in Deuteronomy 24 about remarrying your first wife. It had nothing to do with that. What the rabbis were arguing about in Jesus' day was this statement in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24 where it says, if the husband finds something indecent about his wife. So the Pharisee, excuse me, the religious leaders of that day, the rabbis in that day, were, they, would, they argued about what constituted indecency. What did that word mean? What constituted indecency? What, in other words, what grounds did a man have to divorce his wife? One school of rabbis known as the Shammai believed that the only legitimate grounds for divorce was sexual unfaithfulness. The other school of rabbis known as, the, known as Hillel, they believed that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. If she was a horrible cook, if she wasn't pretty enough, if she had bad breath, whatever, whatever reason. So now, now, not surprisingly, the Pharisees adopted the Hillel position. They adopted the position that you could divorce your wife for any reason. So with that background, now let's look again at Jesus' words in Luke 16, verse 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now notice how Jesus is addressing men in this verse. That's because he is specifically talking to the Pharisees and exposing their misunderstanding of the law that they so revere. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you value the law which is a good thing. You value the law, and yet in, the, in this example of divorce, you completely ignore the heart of the law. Okay, so what is the heart of the law on this particular point? It's that God values the covenant of marriage. So in Matthew 19, which if you're in an e-group and are doing this, the sermon notes, you'll be looking at this in more detail this week in your group. But in Matthew 19, when Jesus is asked by the Pharisees about Deuteronomy 24... He answers by pointing out two issues. First of all, God doesn't command divorce in Deuteronomy 24, but he allows it. 
because of the hardness of our hearts. God recognizes the sinfulness of the world in which we live in. And the second thing Jesus does in Matthew 19 is go back to Genesis chapter 2, where God established the institution of marriage. And here, I'm going to read just a portion from Matthew 19, where Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, God established marriage, Jesus is saying here, as a permanent union where this man and woman enter into a covenant committed relationship. They become one. It is not to be separated. That's God's heart. That's his vision for marriage. Jesus is acknowledging that here in Luke 16. He's telling the Pharisees, look, to divorce your wife the way you were doing it for any and every reason is to completely miss God's heart for marriage. When you divorce your wife and remarry another, you are committing adultery. Now, now, we tend to view that word adultery um, only in a sexual way, but biblically speaking, adultery is not just about sex with someone who's not your spouse. It's about breaking covenant, tearing asunder this holy covenant of marriage that we have voluntarily entered into. See, Jesus is confronting the way the Pharisees have totally devalued marriage. So divorce for them had just become this easy way out, Right? Now, let me just stop right here and just acknowledge that we are, we are all vulnerable to the same attitude, these same attitudes. We can begin to view divorce like the Pharisees did, as a quick fix, as an all-too-easy way to just kind of move on when things kind of get a little difficult, rather than viewing marriage as a permanent deal, which means giving it all, right? Giving it our all to work through issues, to get help, to get counseling, to try all we can to make it work. See, when we view the goal of marriage as being our happiness, then divorce is going to look really appealing many, many times in a marriage, right? If, if, if the goal of our marriage is for us to be happy, divorce is going to look like a really good option a lot of times. But what if God's goal in our marriage was not our happiness, but our holiness? See, what if God uses marriage to refine us and help us learn about and practice what forgiveness looks like and what genuine love looks like, a love that's not dependent upon feelings, but it's about action? See, God's vision for marriage being permanent provides this powerful context for us to grow, to become more like him, to demonstrate the love that he demonstrates for us. I mean, in Ephesians 5... Paul, the Apostle Paul, says something absolutely astounding. He says that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with us, it's the church. I mean, no wonder God values marriage. It's this laboratory in which we learn how to love the way God loves. Now, please hear me. Please hear me. This, is, this does not in any way devalue someone who is not married. Paul was not married. Jesus was not married. And those guys knew how to love. They knew how to love. So I'm not saying that marriage is the only context to learn how to love. What I'm saying is when we're married, it becomes a challenge-filled laboratory, right? It becomes this challenge-filled place to grow, to become more like Jesus. 
we live in a culture where divorce is so accessible. It is so prevalent. And in that culture, it's easy to lose sight of the value of marriage and, and, and the reality that a great deal of effort is required in order to make a marriage work. Now, this is why we give great priority as a church to things like our, our date night course, marriage course, and our marriage mentoring ministry, and our premarital mentoring ministry. It's why we have a referral list of marriage counselors. See, when we stop working on our marriage, when we let hurts and unforgiveness fester, when we stop communicating, when we refuse to get help for our troubled relationship, we're letting selfishness win. We're letting the enemy do what he does, which is destroy things. So part of what Jesus is doing here in Luke 16 and Matthew 19, part of what he's doing is elevating the value of marriage and actively resisting this idea that divorce is an easy way out. It's a quick to embrace option. It is not. It is a breaking of a union that God has brought together. It is the tearing asunder of a super glued relationship. And have you ever, ever torn something apart that's been super glued? That does not end well, right? I mean, it's, and here's the, and it's why with divorce, it's just painful to all parties. God hates divorce because of the damage and the hurt and the pain that result from divorce. See, again, we have to keep going back to God's heart in all of this. The heart behind Jesus' words in Luke 16, 18 is not a legalistic taskmaster. It's not. It's a God who wants the best for us and whose heart breaks at the pain of divorce, which is why he urges us to view our marriage as a permanent thing, something worth fighting for and cultivating and getting help when needed. So in Jesus' words in verse 18, we see how highly he values marriage and how honestly he speaks about the pain and the sinfulness of divorce as well as the adultery of remarriage. Now, having said all of that, I want us to remember, it's critically important that we remember the context in which the larger context in which we're reading these words a few weeks ago, we looked at the story in Luke 15 about a son who rebelled against his father, basically wishing his dad were dead, and then taking his inheritance and squandering it. It, it is hard to imagine a more horrible and relationally damaging sin than that whole episode, right? It's hard to imagine something more relationally damaging. But what does the father do? when the son returns home to repent. He welcomes him with open arms and he says, you're my son. Nothing has changed that. The father didn't minimize the sin. He just forgave it. The son didn't have to live under this cloud of condemnation for years. You know, the father introduced, hey, yeah, these are my boys. And yeah, that's the one that really screwed up. That's not what was happening. The, 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 the son didn't have to live under this cloud of kind of any time he was introduced, he had to be the one that, that messed up. No, no, he, he was forgiven. He was forgiven. Now, these same truths that were in chapter 15 are very much alive in, chap, in, in chapter 16, verse 18. 
of Luke. Yes, divorce and remarriage constitute adultery, a breaking of covenant, but neither divorce nor adultery are unforgivable sins. They're just sins. And we know exactly how God responds to sinners who acknowledge and repent of their sin. He forgives them. He wipes the slate clean. He doesn't continue to hold this sin over our head or over their head. He gives us a new start. He gives us a hope for the future. He rejoices in us being his beloved sons and daughters. So here's what this means. If you're divorced and that divorce happened completely because of your initiative or your self-centeredness or your adultery or whatever, you can be forgiven for that. You don't have to carry around the shame of being the one who caused a marriage to fail. Yes, it was wrong. Yes, it was sinful. But God forgives sinners. He welcomes them with open arms. In fact, if you've been divorced for whatever reason and have repented of whatever contribution you made towards that divorce, which was a small contribution, large, whatever, you are forgiven completely. You are not a second-class citizen of the kingdom. You are not forever relegated to the C team of ministry involvement. No, you are a beloved child of God whom God wants to use in ministry to others. See, the, God, the gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus talked about in, earlier in this passage, verse 16, the gospel of the kingdom, it requires us to view divorce in this way. It is not the unforgivable sin. It's not. The gospel of the kingdom re requires us to view divorce through this lens of Luke 15. Quoting again, I want to quote again from Rubel Shelley. I thought this was so powerful. He said, can we really believe that a sinner whose offense is divorce has no spiritual option but to live with his or her brokenness forever? Do the Gospels reveal a Jesus who can heal blind eyes, forgive his own murderers, and let drug traffickers have a full range of options for the future, but cannot or will not heal the broken life of someone who fails at marriage? One thing we know to be absolutely true in the gospel is that God never turns away from a repentant sinner. Forgiveness is always God's response to a repentant heart. Always. Well, what about remarriage? What about remarriage? Jesus brings up remarriage here. What about remarriage? In, in this passage, Jesus specifically describes remarriage as adultery. So what do we do with that? We do the same thing we do with the other sins that we've committed. We bring them to the cross. We bring it to the cross. I, I've heard Christians say, well, God will forgive divorce, but if you remarry, you're living in sin. You're living in perpetual adultery. There is no place in scripture that talks about this idea of perpetual adultery. In fact, as we saw earlier in Deuteronomy 24, it was expected that divorced people would remarry. You can read that passage for yourself again later. It was expected that divorced people would remarry. Remember the command 
The command was directed towards a man who was wanting to remarry his first wife after he divorced his second wife. That was the specific command. It was not a forbidding of divorce or remarriage. Just one instance. Now again, there are cultural factors in Deuteronomy that, do, that we don't completely understand. I don't completely understand, which means that we need to be very careful in how we're to interpret that passage. In our totally different cultural context, I don't believe it's wrong for a repentant, divorced couple to be remarried to each other, to pursue that. I don't think that's, that's wrong. In fact, there are other passages in Scripture that seem to encourage that sort of thing in, in, in Hosea and, and Ezra. But regarding remarriage in general, one thing is very clear. To remarry someone else after getting a divorce is not living in perpetual adultery. Yes, it's a sin because of the covenant that has previously been broken, but once that sin is confessed, you are free to move forward in the fullness of God's blessing. Now, someone may argue, and maybe some of you are thinking this, but, but doesn't that encourage people to get a divorce? Well, couldn't we say that about any sin? I mean, have any of us ever done something wrong knowing that God will forgive us anyway? Of course we have. I mean, that, that fact doesn't change the reality of, that God's forgiveness is, is still extended to us. And that he understands, God understands the underlying reasons and the pain that drove us to that particular decision. Now, now, please hear me. This is really important. If a person does remarry, that second marriage falls under the original vision and definition of marriage given by God. That second marriage is to be viewed and treated as being permanent. See, what, what I'm trying to urge us to embrace is a gospel-oriented view of Scripture on this issue of divorce and remarriage. That we are to wholeheartedly pursue God's design for marriage. Absolutely. No compromise. We're wholeheartedly pursuing God's design for marriage. But also recognizing that we are sinners. And sometimes things, sometimes things like divorce happens. And if that's the case, forgiveness is readily available. And so too is a hopeful future. God's grace is big enough to cover our sins and heal our brokenness. That's what the gospel of Jesus promises us. Right? That's the, what the gospel promises us. Now, there's one other pressing question as it relates to this issue. Are there ever biblical grounds for divorce? Would there ever be a biblical ground for divorce? And there are a couple of, of passages in Scripture that specifically mention grounds for divorce in the Bible. One is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus forbids, it's a similar passage to Luke 16, except he adds this line, except for sexual unfaithfulness, and so, or sexual immorality. So that is one exception that Jesus gives in Matthew 5, that divorce is allowed when there's sexual unfaithfulness, not required, but it's allowed. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, Paul says that divorce is allowed if you're married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever freely chooses to desert, to leave you, then you're free to get a divorce. Now, but here's the deal. We need to be very careful 
We need to be very careful here because Paul was not giving a seminar on divorce in 1 Corinthians 7. It was not. He was addressing a specific question raised by a specific church in a specific context. He was not giving an overall seminar. Here's what God says about divorce. No, he was addressing a specific situation in a specific church. See, here's the challenge. The Bible doesn't address every specific situation. The Bible doesn't address a situation where a husband is physically abusive to his wife so that she fears for her life or her kids. The Bible doesn't specifically address a situation where an addiction to alcohol or pornography begins to take over a spouse's life so that they are completely disengaged and unwilling to work on the marriage. The Bible doesn't specifically address mental illness, which in some situations results in huge mood swings and vehement verbal abuse that has perhaps been endured for years. See, when we only allow divorce in these two situations specifically mentioned in the Bible, we can find ourselves with some very awkward ideas about Bible application. For instance, a spouse who is told by her church that she has to stay in an abusive marriage unless her husband commits adultery. So she is earnestly praying and hoping her husband has an affair. Does that really reflect the heart of God? I mean, does that reflect the heart of this law that he's given us and this, the Bible, the truth that he's given us? See, we, we need to be very careful and humble and prayerful and discerning when approaching these matters in specific situations. Because the reality is the Bible doesn't present us with this comprehensive list of every biblical allowance for divorce. It doesn't. Moses or Paul, they didn't have a category for mental illness or physical abuse in their culture. I mean, does that mean that those things can never be grounds for divorce just because they aren't specifically mentioned in the Bible? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, now, you may disagree with me, and that's totally fine. I realize this is a controversial area. You may disagree. That's totally fine. But, but I go back to what Jesus said in Matthew 19, where in response to the Pharisees' question about divorce, he acknowledged two things, the value and the permanence of marriage and the reality of divorce. He acknowledged both of those. And he said, verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your heart's we're hard. See, divorce breaks God's heart, but so too does the devastation and the pain that sin at times brings into marriage relationships. That breaks God's heart as well. In other words, sometimes divorce is a lesser of two evils. It's not something God is happy about, but he's also not happy about the pain that's being inflicted upon people in such a marriage. Now, in the midst of the, the fog, really, of all of these unique circumstances, we need prayerful, humble discernment that fully recognizes God's value for marriage, that fully recognizes the reality of sin, that and that fully recognizes the extent of God's grace given to us through Christ. 
And I believe that any approach to divorce and remarriage that ignores any one of those core elements does not reflect the heart of God or the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, let's take a deep breath. All right, <laughs> I know that was a lot. That was a ton of information. Lots of scriptures, possibly some ideas to process, maybe things you had never heard before, maybe things that you're disagreeing with me about, or maybe things that are kind of stirring hope in your heart. Whatever the case, here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you just to take some time this week and the next days or whatever and just prayerfully process what I've said. Now, if it would be helpful to have a written copy, I don't usually do this, but in light of the amount of information, if it would be helpful for you to have a written copy of this message so that you could look more closely at the scriptures mentioned and all of that, we would be happy to email you one. All you need to do is send an email to the address on the screen there, info at cccgreedy.org, and just put in the, the subject line, just divorce or whatever, just your request for this sermon, and we will email you the manuscript. But more than anything, in the midst of our processing, more than anything, we just need the Lord's wisdom, right? We need the Lord's wisdom. So in light of that, let's, let's pray together. So let me just, as we're quieting our hearts here, let me just encourage us to sit with a question for a moment. Here's the question. What is this message stirring in you? What is this message stirring in you? Maybe it's challenged some long-held beliefs. Maybe it's stirred significant disagreement with me. Maybe it has stirred up places of pain where your life has been impacted by divorce. Maybe it's resurfaced areas of shame in your life about a past failed marriage and you've just carried that shame with you. Maybe it has stirred in you a renewed desire to work through some difficulties in your marriage because of how God values marriage. Whatever is being stirred in you, here, here's, here's my encouragement and God's encouragement. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. He is with you. Let, let, let's just take a moment and welcome Jesus into whatever we're processing here. Wherever we're processing that, just invite Jesus into that place. God, we, we invite you, Holy Spirit, we invite you just to bring wisdom. We invite you to bring forgiveness. We invite you to bring hope and grace and help. Lord, you know each heart and what's being stirred there. So we just pray, we welcome you, Jesus, into this stirring and ask you to continue to speak and provide what we need in this place. And I thank you, God, that we 
we get to look at and we must look at this whole issue through the lens of the gospel. Help us in our processing never lose sight of the gospel, this good news. We pray for that. A gospel-oriented view of this particular topic that acknowledges that value, that acknowledges the value and permanence of marriage, that acknowledges the mess that we live in in this world and the sinfulness, our sinfulness, and that acknowledges the forgiveness that's available at the cross. And so we're so grateful for the cross because all of us need it. Thank you, Jesus, for being such an amazing Savior, giving your life for us. So what we're going to do, we're, you know, we're kind of responding in prayer here, and then we're going to have a couple other responses here. We encourage you to enter into. One is a partaking of the Lord's Supper. And as the music begins in um, just a couple moments, and, and we begin singing these songs that were chosen for this message, that at any point during that, um, we encourage you to come to a table and take a piece of bread, which represents Jesus' body given for us. And then dip that in the, the juice, which represents his blood shed for us, this covenant. It's a covenant that's not based on us, it's based on him. And so then you can partake either of that right there, or you can go back to your seat. So that's what's going to be happening in the next few, um, few minutes as we respond, not only in worship, but also... In, in, in the Lord's Supper. And I want to encourage us to just be attentive to Jesus. He's here and he's with you wherever you're processing this. He's with you. And the table, this table is available for you. Are you, are you needing hope and help for your struggling marriage? This table's for you. Are you experiencing the shame of having been divorced? This table's for you. Are you experiencing the guilt of having caused a divorce? This table is for you. Are you experiencing the wounds and the pain of divorce? This table is for you. Have you had a judgmental attitude towards people who have been divorced? This table's for you. Are you contemplating divorce? This table's for you. Are you feeling ashamed that you're even contemplating divorce? This table is for you. But let's just remember, Jesus died for sinners like you and me. And his grace is big enough to cover any failure. It's big enough to heal any pain. It's big enough to give us the strength we need to move forward in, with him, whatever he's asking us to do. So let, let, let me pray for us. So God set us free now just to respond with all of our hearts in the Lord's Supper and partaking of worship. God, continue to be here and speak to us. Pour out your presence in this place. We pray.